if I go and sit in a tree, it's just some crazy woman sitting in a tree. But when I put a camera on and I record my sitting in that tree, I can claim it's a performance for the camera. But on the other hand, uh, I can also claim it's my field work or it's my raw data for my research work. If you document your artistic research project as an artistic research project and not just an artistic project. With that thinking of that this is research material in mind, it turns into research material. But of course it also comes from the old suggestion by Richard Scherner that we can study things that are performance, but then we can look at anything as performance. Welcome to the latest podcast in our Arts Research Africa dialogue series. These dialogues are intended to stimulate practice, enable research, and inspire collective engagement around the question of artistic research in Africa. I'm Professor Christo Dachety, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts. In this dialogue, I'll be speaking to Professor Annette Arlander, one of our ARA artists in residence. Annette is based in the Department of Theatre and Performance here in the Witt School of Arts for the next two months. Annette Arlander is an artist, researcher and teacher, as well as a pioneer of Finnish performance art and a trailblazer of artistic research. She graduated from the directing course at the Theatre Academy in 1981, becoming a Doctor of Arts, Theatre and Drama in 1999. She was most recently Professor in Performance Art and Theory at Stockholm University of the Arts from 2018 to 2019. Annette, welcome to WITS, and I think you've come at a very opportune time in that we really are struggling to define the different modalities of artistic research that are relevant and appropriate here in an African context, and an area of practice that seems to attract an enormous amount of energy is performance, and you come as someone who's worked a great deal in performance and particularly a person who has been pushing the boundaries of thinking through performance and research, the relationship between them. So maybe we could start by you talking about the background in Finland, Scandinavia, and how artistic research actually became such a topic in universities of the arts. Yes, it's funny. In Finland, one of the reasons why we were so early was very different from UK, where the polytechnic sense, the development in universities created this need for acknowledging the practical knowledge, not only the theoretical knowledge. In Finland, performance as research or artistic research developed in the art schools, and why? Because the art schools were given university status. So, for instance, Theatre Academy, where I had studied between 77 and 81, when I finished my studies in 81 in directing, it was not a university. I got a diploma in directing. It was a professional school. But the university, even though it was small, 400 students, you know, compared to its, amazing, it got university status in 79. When I was studying, I didn't notice that. And it took 10 years. And then they realized, well, we're a university. We can make our own research. And it's a very different situation then compared to in mainland Europe, where many of the art schools need to be credited by a neighboring university. And of course, artists don't want to be controlled by some academics from some other institution. But if your own institution is granted the right to consider what do we want to do in terms of research. It's a different thing. 
Of course, in the case of Finland, there is a different story in all the different art schools. Even today, when the University of the Arts Helsinki is comprised of Academy of Fine Arts and Theatre Academy and Sibelius Academy or the Music Academy, the different legacies are there. So in music, you wouldn't speak of artistic research, but you could have doctorates in music since the medieval times, actually. So the idea of having a music doctorate, which is an equivalent to a PhD, was very strong and influenced the early debates. I think there still is dichotomy in the legislation. So you have artistic grounds or you have scientific grounds. But this uh, double thinking, which I defended my doctorate in 1998, and there was this uh, doubleness of artistic emphasis or scientific or scholarly emphasis, But that was uh, demolished, uh, um, now I speak of theatre academy, because so that was uh, demolished in 2007 only. And that's why I can call myself a pioneer of artistic research, because I was the first doctor of arts in that small school. But also I was the first head of research for two years. And we invited uh, Professor Esakir Kopeltan and worked on using artistic research as an umbrella term. Because, of course, what was important also was that our school happened to have a department of uh, arts education. And the model from, okay, pedagogical training is very academic also and regulated, but there is a model on the teacher investigating their own teaching practice and making research on that, which influenced, of course. Today, I would say we have grown in many cases uh, out of this idea of this dichotomy that on the one hand we have artistic research and on the other hand we have other types of research. But there is a large field of research where different disciplines have their own peculiarities and artistic research in different disciplines have different focus. For instance, in performing arts and in visual arts we collaborate a lot and we have shared seminars in Helsinki, but the approach and the difficulties are very different from for performing arts, uh, PhDs, and uh, or Doctor of Arts, as we call it, and fine art colleagues, because the traditions are different. Could you explore a bit further the particularities of research and performance? I'm thinking of performance as research, PAR, or practice as research, and how performance exists or the complexity of performance as research in that kind of space. Well, performance as research, that's a fascinating thing. So performance as research is actually something else than artistic research, although these fields are now blurring, as Bruce Barton mentioned in the introduction to the book that we edited. So he likes to speak of artistic research in performance. And this is taken up by Laura Cull in a very recent book edited by Paolo de Assis and Lucia Derico, if I remember correctly, Artistic Research Charting a Field in Expansion. It's just come out. And Laura Cull has there a very good overview article about artistic research in performance. But performance as research, to begin with, is a little bit like practice as research, that it does not need concern artistic performance only, but uh, investigating something by doing. So in the same way as we can say learning by doing, we can investigate things by doing, trying them out. Nevertheless, for instance, in Finland, the idea of performance as research hasn't caught up so strongly, partly because of the word performance, which does not have a complete equivalent in Finnish, But also because the idea of investigating by doing 
has been interesting mainly for the art universities or for the universities with art departments. So there has been a division of labor of sorts. So the humaniora, the traditional scholarship universities, they focus on history or then performance analysis of theater performances and so on. So if I try to go back to what you asked about uh, performance as research, there is a difference because the term artistic research was developed within fine arts. And now we use it in many cases, also in performing arts, to emphasize the knowledge of the artist. But of course, performance as research has not been focused on artistic thinking, but on embodied knowledge, on practical knowledge, on yeah, investigating by doing, as I said. And that can be applied in many other contexts, except within sort of art in a strict sense. Although... The idea of discussing artistic research in performance. Actually, for me now, I think the more controversial term is performance. Artistic research is a field in expansion. It has different modes. I've tried to distinguish because there is sometimes an understanding that artistic research is like one thing. But depending on the different artistic disciplines and the different legacies in, in Australia, in the UK, here, in many places... There are very different types of artistic research and also depending on what uh, supporting fields you bring in, whether it's ethnography or art history or pedagogy or, you know, social sciences, the strategies are different. But I think the term performance is the one that is challenging. So what do we understand it? Is it theatre performance, dance performance, music performance? Or is it the performance of our gender identities and gender roles in everyday life? Or is it political performances and, and so on. So the traditional broad spectrum approach of performance studies. But I'm working with uh, plants, or is now especially trees, so are trees performing? You've, I thought, spoken very interestingly about the way that the presentation of performance, the documentation of performance, can be what turns it into research. So it's anything, if it's presented in a way that emphasizes it as research, can be research. So your engagement with trees, your engagement with landscapes, in the way that you document it, that's how it becomes research. Yeah, presenting or documenting, they're very different things, actually. Because, of course, performing artists love presenting. That's what they know how to do. So performance is a mode of presentation in a way. And in social sciences, many social scientists think that, all right, you make your investigations and you make your research. And then instead of writing a paper, you can present the outcomes, the result as a play or something. So that's one mode. But when I speak of um, documenting something, as performance is what turns it into a performance. It's more of a provocation and it's riffing off uh, Philip Auslander's classic uh, text on performance documentation from 2001, where he made everybody very, very angry by saying that it's um, performing a performance art event as a performance art event that makes it a performance art event. So if I go and sit in a tree... It's just some crazy woman sitting in a tree. But when I put a camera on and I record my sitting in that tree repeatedly, I can claim it's a performance for the camera, it's an art piece, it's a work. But on the other hand, uh, I can also claim it's my field work or it's my field notes or it's my raw data for my research work. 
I'm mixing two different things. This idea that if you document something as something, it becomes that. And of course, if you document your artistic research project as an artistic research project and not just an artistic project, with that thinking of that this is research material in mind, it turns into research material. But of course, it also comes from the old suggestion by Richard Schechner that we can study things that are performance very clearly. I mean, somebody performing a dance piece for us. But then we can look at anything as performance. So if, if we look at how people manage traffic uh, jams, uh, that becomes a performance if we analyze it as such. Maybe I can ask you to reflect and talk a bit about your personal trajectory because you began in theatre yes. as quite a traditional theatre performer, director. You also worked a lot in radio. But after about 19 years, you moved into the academy with your doctorate and then seemed to have embarked very much in a research trajectory. Can you talk more about your personal route from what looks like quite traditional theatre practice into a much more research-focused? Well, I like to do two things at once. So during my short career as a theatre director, I graduated as a theatre director in 1981 and enrolled on further education, that is the doctoral programme in 92. So it's like 10 years of professional theatre directing but parallel with doing performance art or like avant-garde or underground, how you want, but like two different things. But I also studied at the Helsinki University for an MA in theatre research and philosophy and history of art and so on. And so the beginning was very much about uh, bridging theory and practice. And that was also the beginning of the discussions in artistic research was about bridging theory and practice, because I had these two sides. But if I think of it nowadays, I wouldn't speak of in terms of bridging, because that somehow assumes that they're separate to begin with, but more using Karen Barrar's agential realism, maybe to say, where do we draw the line between what is theory and what is practice and where do we draw it in each case? But to tell my own story very briefly, I've written about it with the terms um, from space to place to landscape. So my interest was in theatre spaces, how to organise the space, something that we call then environmental theatre, but which today would be called immersive performances or something. And then from these spaces of organizing the theatrical space, I moved to real places, outdoors or historical sites and made a series as my licentiate work in, in 93, 94, a series of 10 interpretations of one play in 10 different locations, changing the play accordingly, you know, site-specific in that sense. And by going to real places, I somehow became fascinated in the notion of landscape. Well, it's, a, it's to make a long story very short to say from space to place to landscape because there were other things involved to it. But the radio comes in with the landscape, recording the sounds of real environments and so on. But also learning this idea of instead of creating an event that needs to happen there with the excitement, with the audience and the actors and so on, to create something that can be recorded. And that is a work where all the power is not with the actors and the human beings are not the main thing. Of course, this is the tension with performing arts in general. That it's, it's a lot. That's why I've moved more to fine arts, because at least in my time, it was very much show business. Yeah, I say show business even in the Finnish sort of municipal theatre context. But so it needs to be something that is 
like catching the attention of the audience and the large audience and to do something experimental, to do something weird that you don't need sort of 100 people to watch immediately. It was considered slightly perverse. So that was my move to research in the 90s was to be able to make experimental art in a way. In that route of making experimental art, I then, well, there is this side issue because I was the first doctor. I was invited back as a professor to create an MA program in performance art and theory and to help my colleagues with artistic research. And of course, I knew what performance art was. In my opinion, it was not theatre. Performance art is performance art in the visual arts legacy. So when I had this challenge to create a program of performance art and theory within a theatre school and a dance school, it was quite a challenge. Not only in bringing in the theory at that time, but also in bringing in performance art in a theatre and dance context. So then I had to reinvent my practice so I could do it only on Sundays. <laughs> That's to make a long story short. But I also have to say that uh, my supervisors, who were historians, Professor Penti Pavlan and especially Professor Pirko Koski, they sent me very early on to international conferences. And that was like, okay, these kind of things are discussed, to Performance Studies International, PSI, and also to IFTR, the International Federation for Theatre Research, where Jacqueline Martin and Bas Kershaw were just starting this group in 2004 with um, performance as research. Maybe that would do as a sort of brief summary? Yes, I think that's a usefully brief summary. And I'm very interested because it's been a tension in the School of Arts over the use of the term performance. And I think a very strong sense that there's a historical ownership of the term in the what used to be the drama department, which is now the theatre and performance mm. department, where you are now. And fine arts, who have over the last few years become increasingly performance-orientated, mm. and a sense that there's a very rich legacy of thinking around performance in the drama discipline that is lacking in the fine arts discipline. In fact, as we know, performance art in the fine arts context really comes out of conceptual art. And just like the way that the conceptual artists used photography, they used it in the most unartistic way. <laughs> that was the attraction. You know, John Baldessari, all the early conceptual artists were interested in bad photography. And similarly, in many ways, the performance tradition in fine arts isn't about stagecraft or maintaining the interest of an audience, but is much more conceptually based. Whereas it sounds to me that you've abandoned, maybe you found it stultifying, that theatrical tradition of performance and embrace the much starker, much less uh, loaded area of fine arts performance. That's funny because you could say it the opposite way, that it's the fine arts uh, tradition that is very loaded. I mean, if, if you're not willing to walk the Chinese wall or, or shoot yourself in the arm, then you're not doing performance art and so on. Of course, uh, you're right about the, the, this idea of the, the performance art uh, 
arising from conceptual arture. But there is also, as Rosalie Goldberg controversially has mentioned, there is also this legacy within the futurists, within the Dadaists, all artists and poets and sort of the multidiscipline dimension of performance. When artists and poets wanted to provoke the audience, they created events. I think uh, it's important this notion of performance uh, within uh, theatre and drama studies. I remember when uh, I studied uh, theatre research, which was very drama-oriented, of course. You read plays. And then I found a book, um, this is now in the 70s and 80s, I, I found a book called Performance in the library. And I was like, yes, finally. But it was about the different ways of putting a play on show. So the dimensions, you know, that there is a visual dimension and there is a music and there is movement and there are other things than the words. And so in European context, following Erika Fischerlicht and, and other theatre historians, uh, focus on performance. They even use performance art as the actor's art. So the focusing on performance means looking at the drama on stage rather than only reading it. Like, this is the 50s legacy. But later she wrote in a book in 2008, I'm not a friend of Erika Fischerlicht. Why do I quote her? Well, with due respect, she has done important work. She wrote The Transformative Power of Performance, where she claimed that actually after the 60s, all arts have become performative in the sense, in her understanding of performative, that is, they have become event based in their character. So in the same way as a theatre performance is in the end generated by the audience and the performers jointly in the moment of performance that happens, the, the shared energy. In the same way, a lot of other art forms, fine art events, exhibitions, installations are in the same way event-like in their nature. So I would say that it would be probably good for the drama departments and the theatre and performance departments to look more at what happens in the fine arts today or in all the arts. But that said, of course, I mean, there are a lot of fine artists who are playing with the conventions of drama, theatre and so on. So I think it's more what you said. The difference is the traditional freedom of the individual artist which, within fine arts, which is very much romanticized, but which resembles the freedom of the poet to be idiosyncratic, do things that you're not supposed to do. And this luxury, which is partly an illusion, but there is still this idea, is rarely available for performing artists who are part of a show, who are part of a production, which is a collaborative endeavor already in its production, but then its collaborative endeavor also in its show. So I'm not thinking that anymore. I'm, I'm sort of befriending theater more. But at some point I was like, theater is a very normalizing. It's a normalizing function. It keeps the community together, but it also produces consensus. Looking at your most recent performance projects, the landscape, the engagements with landscape, I'm thinking of your repeated visits to that island and then your engagements with trees. Can you speak more about that and particularly in terms of how you were discussing performance and the tension between the consensual theatrical tradition and the fine arts tradition of perhaps greater individual freedom. And, and it seems to me your works exemplify that kind of freedom. There's your very solitary engagement. I think you would call it post-humanist, your solitary engagement with plants as performers. 
which for me was quite an astonishing and liberating concept of performance and engagement. Yeah, these are very complicated issues. But to speak about the, uh, my work in what I call performing landscape, which resulted in the series of video works Animal Years on Harak Island of Helsinki uh, between the years 2002 and 2014. This was my time as head of the MA program. So I was a Sunday artist. I invented a practice of time-lapse videos, going to the same place once a week. And that was the only thing I could do. And then when I had liberty to do other things, I noticed I still kept doing these time-lapse videos. It, it had become a practice. But let's say that in some sense, I was mocking the tradition of performance art, criticizing it from within. So creating something that was uh, like sitting in a tree for a year. But actually, I'm not sitting in a tree for a year. I'm sitting in a tree once a week. And it's not suffering experience. It's a pleasurable, it's a rejuvenating, it's a healing experience. All traditions have their holy cows. So then to counter that, but uh, to say why I came to trees and plants was as part of landscape. And of course, landscape in English is a very controversial concept. It's a really colonial term that you, you have these rolling hills you overlook. So when I realized this, I thought of how can I engage with some elements in the landscape instead of sort of having the human being there and then everything else is the backdrop. And of course, a tree or a, a shrub is a living being and is also somehow an individual. So I think maybe one of the first ones was actually, I was sitting in a pine tree on Harak Island in Year of the Dog. And then there was some, then I was sitting under a spruce and then my favorite, the juniper, which I was so-called holding hands with. So the project I finished in Stockholm in 2019, two-year project, or actually three years because I have a preliminary year in Helsinki called Performing with Plants, was a development from this uh, idea of landscape, how to look at uh, other agents in the environment in a different way. My first idea was not necessarily the post-humanist logic, but more I was interested in understanding the environment in another way, which brought me then to post-humanist ideas and, and new materialist ideas. And, and this idea that, like Stacey Alaimo writes, environment in question marks, environment for whom? Are you my environment? Am I your environment? You know, also when I started the project, I was not aware of the enormous blossoming <laughs> of critical plant studies. So in the wake of animal studies, animal rights movements, this critical plant studies is a big... I wrote some article and got some peer review back that, well, interesting thoughts, but what about this and this and this and this and this? And there is so much research done now by scientists in actual how trees or plants really function. They have memory, they make decisions, you know, it's incredible. But also there is a huge area like in literary studies where there is focus on plants in literature. If you think of the Pulitzer Prize winning novel, The Overstory by Richard Powers. But so plants are the new animals. Yes, which is going to make it difficult for vegans. <laughs> well, there has been debates where some militant vegans have been very uh, criticizing the idea that plants are considered living. And personally, I can understand that or other types of criticism against uh, posthumanism as well, that, that if we look too much at animal rights or if we look at the life of plants, we risk to deflate 
interest from human rights and what needs to be done on that level. In that sense, I was very, very happy to see the painting on campus the first day I came, where there is this fist that is made into a tree with a text, I hope I quote it right, environmental rights, social rights, because this is a false dichotomy. If we don't realize that plants create an environment for us, we cannot survive without them. In the light of your own practice, your engagements with landscapes, particularly your more recent engagements with plants. How do you figure that in terms of research? Is that still an important enabling concept for the work that you do? Let's put it like this. In the research work, which I'm now reporting, and not everything is published yet and so on, which I've finished, which I called stupidly performing with plants, because that's plants is such a huge area. That's why I focus on trees now. One of the, the research aims was exactly not only to develop my previous practice in landscape into more sort of sustainable or ethically more durable approaches, but to understand what it would mean if we think of performing with entities like plants. Now, of course, people who do that today, most of them are working in bioart, or then a lot of people are also working with like sonification of plant processes and so on. So just sort of sitting in trees, it's like absurd and conventional and so on. But I, I was interested in exploring ways to shift the focus of our thinking of what is performance. I've tried to write about uh, this um, in a text in Performance Philosophy Journal where I explore the idea of appearing with plants. So we appear together in the image space, we appear in front of the camera together. But personally, I, I still uh, think that plants or trees, they also perform. They're very active. They're doing, they're doing their photosynthesis. They're choosing where to go towards light. They're foraging for stuff in the ground and so on. So, of course, that's action. If we think of performance as action, not as showing something for somebody else. But they're also showing themselves to the world and to insects and so on. In terms of research, it's funny, this project I'm involved in here, which I call Meetings with the Remarkable and Unremarkable Trees, I've conceived it more as an artistic project than as a research project. It's partly based on the experiences of this previous research project when I realized that trees are very, they're good partners. They're like, you know, the big animals. People understand the character and importance and presence of a tree in a different way than algae in, in water and so on. But it's also because I like to be with trees. They make me happy and, they, and um, I like to be with trees. They give me energy. But uh, also as a little bit of, um, there is a famous uh, photographer called Thomas Peckenham. Yes, yes, yes. He has written a book about remarkable trees in South Africa as well. And I encountered this book. Of course, the name Meetings with Remarkable Men. He's, he's playing with that pun, which is a book by Gurdjieff, which I haven't read, but which is made into a film by Peter Brooks, I think, and so on. But then I'm playing with uh, Thomas Pekenham's title of Remarkable Trees, with remarkable and unremarkable trees because uh, I'm interested in the stories behind people's attachment to trees. And it partly also came because I went to visit one of the oldest trees in the world, which is called Old Chico. And it's a small uh, spruce tree near the Norwegian border in Sweden. It's really unremarkable. 
It's the most unremarkable spruce you could imagine. But they've investigated the roots. It's a clone and it's 9,950 years. So it's been there since the Ice Age. It, it was just incredible. So this idea of what is remarkable and what is unremarkable is fascinating also. And this is your project, your residency project for the two months that you're going to be here? Yes. And are you looking for trees? Because I saw you'd started with an oak tree in the garden of the cottage that you're staying at. Yes, that was just, uh, I thought, to do something with the nearest tree that I have. But I also heard from the landlady that it's a very special tree for her because it's supposed to be an Irish oak planted because it's an Irish area and so on. But besides that, that's my sort of private practice because it's conveniently there, becoming a tree, doing some exercises with it. I plan to go and visit different trees because Johannesburg, this is really a place with trees. And I hope that people would invite me to meet trees that are important for them. So it would be really great if you have a tree that you think is remarkable or unremarkable or just relevant for you. Please invite me with my camera to... I have. In fact, one of the oldest trees in Johannesburg is here on this campus. Wow. We can go and visit it. Let's do that. It's really old. It's probably the oldest growing thing. Not, nothing like your spruce in Norway, but it's easily older than probably any of the buildings or structures right, right. in Johannesburg. And it's here on this campus. It's an old blue gum. It's an Australian blue gum that must have been planted by some of the original gold prospectors. And... It's still there. But that's not very old for a tree. For this area, it's old, yeah. You can see much older ones down in the forests on the east coast. Yeah, yeah, but for Johannesburg, it, so it was planted when the city was... Uh, Before the city started, when just the very first prospectors... Right, were, right, so yeah, then yeah. it's 100... So it's, it would be about 100, 140 years old. Right, well, that's a, that's a good age. And it's a big tree. Yeah. They grow big these Australian trees because they find the environment very easy, unlike Australia. So how would the, you would just be inviting people to introduce you to trees that are significant to them and then you would be documenting those trees? Would you document the person with the tree? Well, yes, it, it's funny because normally my own practice is I always go into the image myself and I'm normally not uh, recognizable because I, I show only my back, but there is a human figure. And often I do repeat the same image, either like every hour for a day or then once a week or something like that. And, and sometimes I just sit in a tree for 10 minutes. I've explored different ways, but actually now the first attempt we did in Patterson Park with an oak was together with Meyer, and actually I was not performing, so it was Meyer who was performing. So it's not decided. Let's put it like this. I'm completely happy if the only tree that I record is the oak tree that I'm performing with now and making friends with next to my, the cottage where I stay. Everything else is plus points. That's one of the reasons you go into residencies, to blow your mind. I try to because I'm so set in my ways. <laughs> Annette, thank you very much. And I look forward to seeing how your residency project develops over these two months. So, thank you. You've been listening to a dialogue between myself, Christo Doherty, the Head of Artistic Research in the Witt School of Arts, and my guest, Professor Annette Arlander, the Professor in Performance, Art and Theory at the Stockholm University of the Arts Research Centre. 
This podcast was produced by Elna Schutz and was funded by the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation as part of their support for the Arts Research Africa project in the Witt School of Arts, University of the Witwatersrand, Johannesburg, South Africa. The music for this podcast, Decompress, was composed by Lee Rosvier and is used under a Creative Commons license.